Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes a look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. I'm Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Benjamin Tallis, senior researcher here at the Council and head of its action group Seitenwende that looks at the changes that Germany is making in its foreign policy or not following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And Ben, this is right at the core of what we are talking about today on a very special episode of Berlin Side Out due to a visit to Berlin and the council by a very special guest. That's right, Aaron. This week at the DGAP and also on Berlin Side Out, we're joined by Her Excellency Olga Stefanishina, the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. Olga, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, your visit could not come at a more critical time because as we discussed this morning here at the DJP, Europe's current approach to Ukraine risks locking in the costs of defeat without securing the benefits of victory. And that's um, what we're here to discuss and what we're here to overcome in many ways because Western, including German, support at the moment isn't enough to help Ukraine win the war against Russia. Rather, it's, we're potentially heading for a stalemate because the support that's being provided is enough to, for the time being, make sure Ukraine doesn't lose. But this stalemate or a long, protracted, bloody positional war or attritional war would cost the lives of many more Ukrainians. Or we could actually see an unjust, forced settlement um, that would reward Russian aggression, with Ukraine being pushed into negotiations by its partners, or at least trying to by its partners, ahead of when uh, that would actually be reasonable. We convened this event here at the DJP because our expert analysis from the action group Zeitenwender, which I lead, shows that this approach and the outcomes it will bring would impose huge costs, not only on Ukraine, but also on European security and global order, and thus also for Germany, which would bear specific costs due to its dependence on stability, order and liberal norms, as well as the global commons that are protected by these things, but also due to its particular lack of preparedness. And that's something that we've discussed at length on this show. Germany, while it has made many changes, is still nowhere near where it needs to be in terms of production of military equipment, in terms of equipping itself to defend Germans and to play its full role in NATO, nor to provide the kind of support that would actually mean that Ukraine was more likely to win rather than us seeing this long protracted stalemate. Now, the other part about this is that if Russian aggression in Ukraine is rewarded in any way, rather than Russia being defeated and deterred in Ukraine, it's going to raise the security costs for Europeans massively. You think Germany had trouble getting to 2% of GDP spending on, on defense? Wait until we try and get to three and a half Cold War level spending, which would be required to build the real capabilities that would then be needed to deter a resurgent Russia, emboldened by its success in Ukraine. This, we argue, is not the time to be making false economies. It's not the time to make savings, to save a few euros here and there, in order to only have to have a spend far, far more than that in future. Nonetheless, we shouldn't see this all in terms of cost. We should see the huge opportunities that would actually come from Ukrainian victory. It's been a pleasure to have you at DJP here this morning. We want to get your take for our listeners on Berlin Side Out about the big picture, about where Ukraine's victory fits into the big picture and why Germany should back that victory. 
Thank you so much. It's it's uh, a very unfortunate that it's only five five minutes, uh, but uh, I think that there's been plenty of public discourse already over today, and uh, and there will be a lot of public communication following my meetings. It's just everybody has to uh, to play its part, and Ukraine sees the bigger picture that this. Uh, transformations, uh, this war is existential. It's existential. It's the war against everything we were managed to seal the peace, the coexistence, the consensus, the world-based order, the rules which should be obeyed. And Ukraine is playing in its part for, for, for the victory of this like project called peace and the world order. And Ukraine's part is unfortunately, unfortunately, to fight on the front line, to stick to uh, to the reforms, to survive, to show its commitment to uh, to to the democratic world. But there is another part, and this part uh, of the game is the role the Europe, the U.S., the other players should should uh, should should work on. Is that what comes after the victory of Ukraine? There's plenty of job, and the enlargement of European Union is part of that, is to seal the peace of, in the Europe. And to say that nor Eastern European countries, nor former Soviet Union countries, nor Western Balkan uh, countries would never again be subjected to any military or hybrid warfare. So it's sealing the peace after the victory of Ukraine. And everybody has a role to play here. And I think that there is a special historical role uh, uh, of the leading countries across the Europe is Germany and is France. There's no way we, you may not recognize it. You may not like it. You may take a different policy line if you're a chancellor or you're a member of the parliament. But this is reality. This has always been this way. If Germany, France, Italy stands for a big picture, a future of Europe, a vision, that means the vision of Europe. And it's not a matter of choice. As, as for Ukraine, it's not a matter of choice to fight or not. It is just so. Right. And it was about after 1989, you mentioned in your public speech this morning, we, was, we stood ready to seize those opportunities were there, that were there. Aaron, opportunities should play a bigger uh, part in this discussion, shouldn't they? Absolutely, and we've talked about that before, Ben. Um, Deputy Prime Minister, thank you for joining us. In Berlin in particular, but also in other European capitals, when we talk about Ukrainian accession to either the EU or to NATO, uh, we often hear first about the costs and the obstacles and the challenges, or even the reason we need to do this and why it's so dire that we need to do this. Uh, but I don't think that we talk nearly as enough about opportunities. What sort of opportunities not just for Ukraine, but also for the rest of Europe, uh, does having Ukraine in the EU and in NATO in the future have? First, uh, it's already an obviousity that Ukraine has a word to say when it comes to Europe and European project. And uh, given that EU is the largest all-European project, it's obvious that Ukraine should be, uh, as I always say, not in the menu, but over the table, obvious. Uh, but at the same time, Ukraine is the only one remaining largest market outside of EU single market. Uh, so uh, EU benefits with the, uh, gaining this market into EU single market and becomes uh, the one of the largest global markets. Uh, and uh, uh, speaking about Ukraine being uh, an agrarian country, 
it also a huge benefit in terms of access to the third markets of the world. Now, when EU is trying to seal in the deal with Latin American, uh, build the uh, the stronger economic ties with the uh, with with China, uh, Ukrainian market is what is needed. And I think uh, um, the the perception should be shifted from the one existing now is that Ukraine is not going to burden EU uh, with its huge uh, agricultural market. Basically, we will allow to shift the burden from the other countries who are the major um, uh, major contributors to EU budget, to EU agricultural budget, which is now uh, which has been disbursed to the subsidies. Subsidies. Ukraine will share this burden, and Ukraine will help to balance the market. Of course, it will be a competition, but Ukraine cannot be not agrarian country. It is the reality, but it should be only seen as a benefit. Right. And there's also the great opportunity of actually coming to a stable security situation in Europe. Without Ukraine in NATO, is there a stable security situation in Europe? Of course not. So uh, Ukraine in NATO is just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. As my uh, beloved colleagues in the sea say, uh, Olga, you have to do everything you have to until there will be a decision that will be taken overnight. So, and this is like hashtag overnight decision. Uh, is uh, this is the matter of time? Uh, but I think the major task on our side right now is to de-romanticize NATO. Uh, so in Ukraine, NATO has been part of the political policies, part of the campaigning, uh, um, it's part of the uh, strategic course of, of the country. It is so. It has been also the mystification uh, from Russian Federation about this NATO, the enemy. But in reality, NATO is also a very instrumental organization. And uh, speaking about the uh, reform of security and defense sector of Ukraine, post-war recovery of the armed forces of Ukraine, um, uh, everything related to uh, addressing the challenges of the retired officers of the armed forces of the veterans, this is the capacity which NATO has. And it's much cheaper, much more reliable, much more capable to outsource managing this task to NATO, uh, with Ukraine leading on that. So, and uh, I think that speaking about securing the Europe, uh, it's already now when NATO has to identify the capabilities which would be key for NATO with Ukraine in it. Superb. Deputy Prime Minister, we thank know you, you have to go on to your next yeah. meeting, but thank you very much for thank joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Excellency, for making these points so clearly. Joining us here in Berlin, we have Alexander Müller. He is a member of the German Bundestag with the Liberal Free Democrats, who make up part of the current three-party coalition in Berlin with both the Greens and the Social Democrats. He is also the speaker on the Defense Committee uh, for the Free Democrats. Uh, also, the Social Democrats, uh, from the Social Democrats, we have with us Christian Klink. Uh, he, the SPD is, of course, the uh, party of Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Christian is a member of the German Bundestag. He also sits on the Defence Committee in Parliament. Welcome to the show to you. Also with us is retired Major General Mick Ryan, formerly of the Australian Army, who will be known to many of you on Twitter as War in the Future, who's been one of the most insightful commentators on the military dimensions of the Ukraine conflict, but also the key link between the military and political aspects of how we go about winning. Mick, welcome to you and thanks for joining us all the way from Australia today. 
the Deputy Prime Minister's live speech at DGAP this morning. She talked very strongly about why Ukraine has to win, why that's in uh, the interests of Germany. So first, let's come to uh, to Alexander Muller and then Christian Klink on the German uh, situation, where we're at, what are the obstacles, what's holding us up. Uh, Alexander Muller, please, first, over to you. As you know, Germany is the um, second uh, biggest um, donator uh, for um, um, weaponry, financial and humanitarian help um, for uh, Ukraine. Um, second after um, USA, um, we have provided a, a lot of stuff uh, to Ukraine and we do this out of um, conviction because uh, Ukraine has chosen to come to the West to share our values. To They want freedom, they want democracy and they demonstrated for, it, for that and uh, people died uh, for this. And uh, Ukrainians are fighting for these values and that's why we are helping them. And that's also why Putin is attacking them, because he does not want this spirit of uh, freedom uh, in his surroundings. Um, and that makes it even um, more um, important to, to support uh, Ukraine. Um, regarding the, um, the coming into EU, regarding into NATO, Germany is uh, very open. Uh, Germany wants Ukraine to be part of uh, NATO and uh, EU. It is a, a long way. Uh, we want to make it as fast as possible. Um, so that's a, <laughs> the roundup of the current situation. Thank you for that, Alexander. Uh, but Christian Klink, Germany is still pursuing a strategy of arming Ukraine not to lose rather than to win, isn't it? Benjamin, you're raising an important issue at that point. Um, I believe, as Alexander Miller said, we are doing quite a lot. So we're like the second largest contributor um, after the Americans. Um, so I think it's a great testimony for the Americans like to step in and to do a lot for Ukraine. I think it's also a great testimony for Germany because when you look into Germany's history, it's always been, after the Second World War, it's always been very peace-oriented. Like There have been very few weapons expert into conflict regions from Germany. So what we are doing is a new thing. It's, like it's new for the German government. It's also new for the German people. So that might be one reason why we are, at some points, we are still very reluctant to do certain things. But yeah, I believe we should step up because I think it's it's a large area. It's a huge area where the battle is being fought. There are a huge, a large number of units are involved on both sides. So, like for instance, the delivery of I like, 18 Leopard tanks from Germany altogether, something like 50 Leopard 2 tanks from from all the Allies. Um, if you compare it to the whole area where like the combat is, it's like it's not really it's not really a big thing. So I believe yeah, we should step up. What would be necessary, in my opinion, would be to to get the in industry to produce more, like to, to roll out more quantity and to deliver more quantity to Ukraine. And this is something that Germany after the Second World War has not done before. So like the, the German administration is not used to it. The German industry is not used to it. The German people are not used to it. So there are some obstacles. But yeah, I believe we should we should move into that direction. All of that said, so as you were saying, yes, Germany is the second uh, largest provider of military assistance to Ukraine after uh, the U.S. But even with that said, we are missing uh, some very key kit. Uh, so because we are going to be discussing weapons, uh, specifically that type of kit that Ukraine needs to win this war, we are also joined uh, by Mick Ryan. Now, uh, I want to come to you because in the Bundestag on November 16th, we heard one Social Democrat uh, Bundestag member, Jörg 
Nürnberger compare Ukraine's request for Taurus uh, missiles to complaints from a child that is never content with the toys it has. Uh, so let's get into that. From a battlefield perspective, uh, from a kinetic perspective, what are Taurus missiles used for and what kind of difference would they make? Well, what the Taurus would allow the Ukrainians to do is expand their strategic and operational strike complex at a time when ground operations are starting to wind down. One of the big differences between last winter and this winter is that Ukrainians now have a strategic strike complex. Last winter, they had no way of responding to Russia's systemic attacks on its infrastructure and its people and its cities. This year, it does. Um, so the Taurus missiles can expand their capacity to take out uh, Russian command and control centres, whether they're in Crimea or southern Ukraine, while other Ukrainian systems are used to potentially respond in kind when the Russians destroy Ukrainian power stations. I fully expect, because the Ukrainians have already telegraphed this, that Every time the Russians take out a Ukrainian power station or substation, the Ukrainians may look to respond in kind to try and deter that kind of behaviour from the Russians. So I think the Taurus, the Scalp and others uh, will be useful for Crimea and southern Ukraine whilst the Ukrainians use their own systems to tack deep inside Russia to deter them from systemic targeting of infrastructure. Thanks very much for clarifying that, Mick. Um, you recently wrote a piece on your Substack, Futura Doctrina, uh, talking about how we actually break out of what has been called positional war. Other people have referred to it as attritional war or even stalemate. So how do we get beyond that? Well, the most important steps we can take now are all political uh, and they're all human. At the end of the day, most countries, uh, you know, with the possible exception of, say, uh, the Baltics, Poland, the United States and Germany, uh, other than that, most countries have been very interested, but there's no way you could call them committed. If you have a look at the potential, uh, uh, how much national wealth countries have been dedicating to this, and I put my own country in this boat, you know, it's less than 0.1 of a percent of their GDP. This is a very, very tiny proportion of their national wealth indeed for something that isn't just a European security concern. This is a global security matter where what Russia does is being watched by other authoritarians and what Russia does now will influence the global security environment probably for the next 20, 30 or 40 years. So we need a level of commitment to a new strategy to not just help Ukraine tread water, we need to help them swim and win the race. We need to help commit to defeating Russia in Ukraine, not just defending against Russia. We need a commitment to industrial expansion that is not occurring at the pace that is required. Uh, the arsenal of democracy has not yet manifested, and it probably isn't going to manifest for some time, whereas the Russians started industrial mobilisation last year, and we now have a Iran-Russia-China industrial complex, which is the arsenal of authoritarians. So these are just some of the things that we need to do to actually commit to helping Ukraine win, not just be very interested in helping them defend themselves. Alexander and Christian, I want to put this to you as well, because, I mean, you're right to highlight all that Germany's done. It's not nothing. It's not even close to nothing. It's a lot. But is it close to what's needed to be done? Also not. 
This is a global security concern, as Mick said. This is a huge issue for European security. If we reward Russian aggression rather than defeating Russia in Ukraine and therefore deterring Russia from future Ukraine, we're going to face a massive need to rearm way beyond what we're thinking of now. The moment is now to actually make the investment in Ukraine's victory, which will save us a fortune in future. We've seen Germany struggle to get to 2% of GDP on defence spending. Getting to 3 or 3.5% Cold War levels of defence spending will be a struggle in the current financial environment. So why make it so hard on ourselves? Should we not be doing more now and moving at the speed of need rather than uh, just overcoming some internal taboos? Absolutely. I agree what Mick said. We must uh, do more. The problem is um, it's, uh, it, it all takes time. Uh, we have uh, ordered new Leopard 2 tanks this summer. Uh, the 18 pieces we gave away will take two and a half years until they are built. And it, it, it's not possible to make it uh, faster. And uh, we have some stuff in the Bundeswehr, of course, but we need to take to, to get the balance between being able to defend ourselves and uh, giving away what we don't need. And we, we don't have uh, so many tanks. We don't have the fighter jets uh, that Ukraine uh, needs. We have the, the very old tornadoes who d don't fly uh, any longer and the very complex uh, Eurofighter. So there's also nothing we can we can give, a, give away. There are certain things, we mentioned Taurus already, there are certain things that could make a difference that we could give away. That's a political question currently. But additionally, we have another problem currently in Germany. We have budget problems. Uh, we have uh, overdrawn our uh, budgets in the last years and our um, constitution gives us uh, very clear um, borders uh, what we can do with our money and what we can't. And we have uh, uh, currently discussions how we can save money. And uh, additionally, we have a very strong peace movement in Germany. I would say about one third of the, of the public um, thinks we should go into peace talks very naive um, uh, thinking um, uh, instead of uh, delivering weapons. So uh, these are the political problems that we uh, currently face. But uh, generally, the democratic parties in the Bundestag are committed to improve the, the help. Let's go to those political problems um, for a moment, because uh, I was referring to earlier the November 16th uh, Taurus debate in the Bundestag. Uh, so I'd like to give both of you a, a chance to comment on this. Um, Alexander, you were very vocal during that particular uh, debate um, on Taurus. Uh, however, we did also notice, Christian, um, from the Social Democrats, uh, from the uh, members who spoke during that debate, uh, there was scarcely the word Taurus was even used when they made uh, interventions. Your two parties, who are, of course, in the current German government together, uh, you don't seem like you're very aligned uh, on this. So what kind of signals do you think that's sending to Ukraine, to Russia, to Germany's partners and the rest of the West? That certainly is not a good signal. Like um, according to what you just mentioned, uh, my colleague, you're also you're get, like bringing me into kind of a difficult situation at, at that point because it's actually a very likable colleague. I appreciate that guy very much, but I, I wouldn't have used that terminology at that point because I think there we have a lot of common ground. We have a lot of, lot of common ground in the German government and in within the coalition parties, and we have a lot of common ground also with the major democratic opposition party, with the CDU parties. I believe we should send 
then also we should send out that signal like more strongly. I believe that would be the right thing to do. So we have a lot of common ground regarding that we we want to contribute uh, weapons. Uh, also, of course, there's a lot of financial aid, humanitarian aid, but we are I think we are talking specifically about weapons in this discussion. So that we have a lot of common ground that we want to contribute. We want to continue our military deliveries for as long as it takes. So and we also have a common ground that that this is something that is worth putting the budget in. Like Alexander Müller has mentioned that we have constraints. There are technical constraints, there are financial constraints, and we need to work on that. But um, we have a lot of common ground in the government within the political parties and the democratic spectrum that we want to do like as much as we can for as long as it is necessary. You've been actually been one of the strongest social democrat voices on providing more support for Ukraine, more weapons for Ukraine, writing also with colleagues across party lines from the Greens, from the FDP as well, so all across the governing coalition. But just to push you on one thing, as long as it it takes. Gabrielis Landsbergis, the Lithuanian foreign minister, recently said he doesn't understand what the it in as long as it takes is. Shouldn't rather than that, we should be talking about whatever it takes to win? Well, from the bottom of my heart, I believe you do have a point there. What we should avoid is what we should avoid is that the conflict drags on and on and on because this also means people dying. This also means this means people dying every day. So um yeah i wish like you know especially in the beginning of the conflict like where german help was a bit slow coming which was also the one of the reasons for the article which alexander muller and i thank him a lot for that and Nani and i wrote so i believe we should have done more at certain points because i think now we would be closer to to, to finishing the conflict now we would be closer to an end of the conflict like which is more favorable to the ukrainian side which is what we all want so yeah i believe in the beginning we should have done more i believe I believe at the moment we are doing quite a lot, but as I mentioned before, I believe we still could do more in gaining a more realistic perspective to ending that conflict on terms which are favorable to Ukraine. Uh, let's come to you, Mick, quickly for a minute. We uh, In Germany, we're talking a lot about Taurus, Taurus missiles. That's a huge part of the debate at the moment, uh, which seems like deja vu. Groundhog Day all over well, again from I the mean, Leopards. Yeah. Deja vu because we've had the same debate with the Leopards before, and it gets a bit tiring, if I'm honest. But um, we are focused on this particular type of weapon in our debate at the moment. But what else is needed uh, for victory? Is Taurus sufficient? Can Ukraine achieve what it needs if we do give it everything that it is asking for and everything that it needs? So what does Ukraine need? Well, <laughs> the flippant answer is everything. Um, I think, you know, there, there are a few key areas. Uh, firstly, it needs help uh, with the intellectual side of how do they break out of positional warfare. I, You know, I'm a strong believer that there was an intellectual failure in NATO in the lead-up to the counter-offensive. Uh, we had 18 months to learn how modern war had changed significantly, a, six months to watch the Russians construct the Suravikan line, uh, but we didn't seem to adapt uh, mid to late 20th century combined arms doctrine that was really designed for the 1970s through to the 1990s. And at the same time, you know, the things we gave them to get through the obstacles were just in, in two lower densities where we have nearly a 1,000 armoured engineer vehicles sitting in, in uh, yards across Europe. So there's intellectual assistance required there, I think. We shouldn't expect the Ukrainians to do it all themselves. Um, the second piece clearly is the informational fight 
I think that, you know, it's gone off the boil a little bit with what's going on in Israel. We need to put the pressure back on the fence sitters, which is about two thirds of the world, to try and get them on board with whether either it's sanctions or, or helping Ukraine. A large part of the country just has taken a vote not to do that. I've already spoken about industry. But I think the final thing we can hope help Ukraine with is politicians in democracies need to explain this war to their people. I think there has been a fundamental gap in just about every political party in the West, firstly in understanding war as it is now. I think most people were so conditioned to 30 years of peace and the brush fires in Iraq and Afghanistan, which weren't big, intense, high-conflict, uh, high casualty wars. Um, they need to commit to understanding what war is and then they need to commit to explaining to their citizens why it's important to expend national treasure in helping Ukraine defend itself. Too few politicians have done that and the ones that have tried have only done it once or twice, like Biden. Um, so I think there's a range of areas well beyond the material side where we need to throw everything we've got informationally, intellectually and politically at this battle. Right. And of course, that's part of our role, too, as think tankers, as journalists, as people trying to help win that intellectual battle. So we very much see ourselves as as part of that. But Alexander, let me let me come to you on this, because we've seen, as Mick said, we've learned what we need is not just precision. We need massed precision. We need massed expendable kit that can actually be disposed of in large numbers in order to get through well-entrenched defenses. We do have a lot of that stuff waiting, but we need to order more. We need to make that case to our populations by talking to them like adults about what the costs of not doing this were. You talked about the difficult financial circumstances, but surely, I mean, there are some savings worth making and others that you can't afford to make. Isn't this one of the latter? Anything that we try to afford, if we increase the, the budget for uh, weapon export, uh, we have to take the money from other things away. Um, and we are currently, uh, as I already said, since 10 days now in a, in a very difficult situation, um, budget uh, um, is, um, is, is scarce. And uh, we need to scratch together uh, the money. We had a decision three weeks ago where we um, expanded the uh, the, the weapon um, uh, the, ma- the money for weapon export to Ukraine from four to eight billion uh, euros. That what was decided three weeks ago, and I hope that this will um, this this will hold during the current uh, budget negotiations. So um, I think money is not the 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 scarcest um, factor. I think industry production is the the biggest problem currently because EU also. Um, uh, gives money. So I I think uh, we we need more production capacity. But that's the next problem is, in Germany, we have um, a a free market, uh, also including weapon industry. Other countries have state companies or um, companies that uh, listen to the state and um, adapt their capacities. Uh, If if the government says uh, increase, then they increase. But in Germany, they increase their capacities only if they see uh, a long-term production capacity. And that's what uh, German politics cannot offer. We can uh, tell for the the next two or three years uh, the budget that we have. But of course, our democratic system does not allow us to um, promise 
uh, budgets for the next government that will be elected in 2025. There will be a new government and they will make their own priorities and uh, we, we cannot rule uh, or overrule uh, in the future. So we can make promises for the next two or three years. And that's a problem. Uh, the industry says we need more security. We need uh, more years of, um, of um, yes, foreseeable uh, um, uh, orders. Um, that's that's a hard thing currently. Of course, we talk to our industry, um, but uh, they have the problem they don't get um, loans. Uh, also, a problem. The banks want to be ESG conformal, so they they want uh, do not want to give money into. Um, uh, weapon industry and all these things have to be dealt with that's that's a current or uh, currently our problem let's go to you on this christian thing the esg issue for those who are unaware is the way the european union ranks uh, industries that are harmful or not harmful socially harmful for example and therefore it puts a, an, a, a disincentive for pension funds and for others or banks to actually invest in those industries and remarkably the eu in its wisdom has declared the defense industry to be one of those industries this is part of the mindset set shift that is needed in Germany, Christian, uh, and more widely around Europe, isn't it? To see defense as actually not an, something of evil, but actually a crucial part of our fight for good. Well, absolutely. I have given this matter some thought, and probably this was not a good signal from the start. It's like the, the idea of like putting the, the armament industry on that list is quite some years old, so that was before that was before like the Russian aggression against um, the Russian attack in, in 2022. So might have even been before for Crimea, but still like being a captain of the reserve forces, I, I think that that's never been a good signal because I think it was always clear that you need the capability to defend yourself. It's, also, if you were like a, a civilized nation in a, in a peaceful environment, you just need that capacity. You need training for that. So I believe it wasn't a good signal from to start with. It would be a disastrous signal at this time. So it needs to go. As far as I know, so it's like they've taken it off the desk. As far as I know, they are not like actively pursuing this anymore from European Union side. But there are still some financial institutions in Germany who do it. Like like they are like um, it's like the old mindset. Those like like they're basically voluntarily voluntarily like putting stocks and funding for armament industry like oh they're taking it out of their books um even though at the moment they are not obliged to do so so this is there are a couple of banks they do that so this is not a very good sign so i absolutely agree with you so the european union it's it's good to see it go so this regulation will not come into place for the next like 10 or 20 or 30 years and this is a good thing it needs to go it's good that the european union doesn't touch it so that's the good thing and also i believe the banks shouldn't be like to in Germany, we say popelier than the Pope, more faithful than the Pope, so that we have that saying in Germany, meaning that you uh, that you put regulations on yourself, which you do, are not obliged to do so. So, and the banks should stop doing this. So, absolutely, I agree that this is part of the change of mindset that we need. More Catholic than the Pope, a uh, phrase not uh, exactly. a to Berlin inside out <laughs> listeners, even. I want to push this whole point on industry and everything else because we are talking a little bit about implementation problems. I mean, the the whole um, aspect of having the industry and uh, you know having that long term outlook is is an issue of implementation. But I also think that we're missing we're missing the strong political signals as well that we are really actually committed to this. Um, you know, and the tourist debate is a very uh, classic example of this. I mean, on one hand, we have a successful a success story when it comes to implementation. We are the second largest uh, supplier to 
to Ukraine. Uh, yet we have military aid, yet we seem to take every chance we can to basically muddle uh, the signaling politically for how we for how big our support actually is. Uh, so let's uh, I want to come to two questions on this. Uh, what sort of signal does it send, for example, when we you know, talk about whether uh, it's four billion or eight billion for, in assistance for Ukraine, and yet we managed to find ourselves two hundred billion uh, euros to to see ourselves through a single winter. So, what sort of political uh, signal does that send? That's the energy price cap that the German government found two hundred billion for that, on top of one hundred billion for the special fund for defence, and eight billion doesn't sound like a lot compared to that, does it, Aaron? Well, I mean, we're talking a lot about money issues and budget and that sort of thing, but how credible is that argument when we're spending this kind of money on? on other things, especially on that energy price cap. I see your point. So, but allow me to mention that um, so we're still having uh, we're still having a very strong support within the German people for the ongoing support to Ukraine. The support to Ukraine, of course, like contributing. I think we're about in, in the area of like 30 billion altogether. Like if we arms, if we um, if we add arms delivery and financial aid and humanitarian aid, if we put it all together, that's so that's quite an impressive sum. And the support within the German people is quite high because we also care about our own people. Like when Russia cut the oil and gas deliveries, we tried to get them through the winter. So so I believe it, in general it was the right thing to do. Also, allow me to mention that there is all kinds of propaganda, like from the extreme left wing and from the extreme right wing. There is a lot of propaganda going on, like in social media, against the German support to Ukraine, especially against the German arms deliveries, which is at some point even even fooled or originated from Russia. So, like some of that propaganda is Russian-based. So I believe I believe it was not a good, it was not a bad thing to do this. However, I believe you are right in the way. I mean, we need our goal should be our we should aim at an end of the conflict on terms that are favorable to Ukraine and to discourage Russia also from starting for the conflicts. You already pointed that out. And the road to this is that the Ukrainian forces have more successes against the Russian field army so that they continue to have successes and they need a lot of equipment for that. They'll need a lot of equipment for that. And not only air defense and artillery, I'm also talking about armored vehicles because, I mean, you won't win a war with air defense. Air defense might make sure you don't lose, but you won't win a war with air defense. And yet it's absolutely my point that we need a financial instrument for this one way or the other. So we should not stop at those 8 billion. We should step up. And, and this is something that we will discuss very thoroughly between uh, Social Democratic Party, Green Party, Liberal Party from Alexander Müller and also Opposition Party so that we will need financial instruments for that. Absolutely. And we will be speaking to both Zara Nani and Roderick Kizaveta, so from the Greens and the CDU respectively, on these same issues. And we're going to come back to the German parliamentary aspects of this in just a moment. But Mick, I want to come to you first on two, two things. You mentioned before the vast reserve of armoured engineering vehicles that we have that would help the Ukrainians break through some of the entrenched defences. But surely one of the keys to this now is also air power, delivering the kind of air power that would actually allow the Ukrainians a measure of local air superiority that could not only hit logistics, but beat back some of the Russian uh, assets like the KA-52 helicopters that have been wreaking havoc on Ukrainian forces stuck in the mire of those minefields and defences. Absolutely. Uh, but how you achieve that local dominance, not overall superiority, uh, isn't just going to come through you know, a couple of squadrons of fourth generation fighters. This is, I think, a combination of greater electronic warfare uh, better command and control systems that link the air and, and land fight, uh, more uh, short and medium range uh, air defence missiles as well as drone kill systems uh, with a layer of these fourth generation aircraft. So you're dead right. 
but often what's really required is the ability to uh, destroy the Russian ability to detect you and then uh, engage you. And most of the time that is not about aircraft, that's about drones, digitised command and control and the systems that link surveillance and fires networks. I will say, however, that, you know, one of the beauties of the F-16 is it addresses the real undermatch that the Ukrainian Air Force has with Russian uh, aircraft in their sensor range and weapon range. They're the two big things that the F-16 will address. It will give them parity or overmatch, which should allow the Ukrainians to push back further the Tu-22s that launch long-range missiles and push back, well back, the Russian aircraft that launch these medium-range glide bombs, which are causing so much hassle at the moment. They, you can't intercept them, so you need to push the launch aircraft back. And they're one of the missions, I think, the F-16s will be uh, allocated as a priority once we see them in theatre. That's extremely useful detail for our listeners there. Just one thing on to push this a little further and also to come back to what Alexander Muller, you said on this before. So we know at the moment the F-16s that are going to come are early block F-16s with the, the shorter range radars and without the massive overmatch missiles that could be provided by providing later block F-16s. And obviously the Ukrainians are hoping that by opening the floodgates with these early block European F-16s, later block American F-16s may come at some point. In the meantime, Europe has options too, though. We have Grippens uh, that, that could be sent once Sweden gets into NATO. We know that that is the block on that at the moment. Until Sweden is in NATO, these are so vital for their air defense that they have to be uh, kept by Sweden. So there's a political job there to keep the pressure on, hold Erdogan's feet to the fire and make sure that actually Turkey pushes for, for Sweden to get in. The other thing, Alexander, you mentioned before that Germany operates old tornadoes and complex Eurofighter typhoons. Now, the complexity argument is something we've heard from the beginning, that it's too complex for Ukraine or Ukrainians. They've blown that out of the water. They've shown us how to fight. Surely the time is, is, is here to say enough of that argument. There are technical reasons why the Eurofighter is more difficult. But surely, as uh, a great military theorist once said, difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week, doesn't it? You are right, uh, but you also have to um, see if you deliver a fighter jet, you have to uh, deliver um, uh, the log logistics uh, behind it. You have to have maintenance, spare parts, uh, you have to train uh, the pilots. You, you see how long now Ukrainians are training already in uh, USA for, for the F-16. This takes some time. Uh, Ukraine did not yet ask uh, for the Eurofighter. I think uh, what was mentioned here, the F-16 is, is the right thing uh, currently to deliver. Uh, Germany unfortunately does does not have F-16s. We also have no Gripen. Uh, but I think the... the argument that Sweden is not yet a full member of uh, NATO is no argument. Uh, Sweden delivers uh, military equipment anyway, um, independently if they are in, inside NATO or not. And by the way, they are a de facto NATO uh, member. Even if Hungary currently um, uh, is opposing to have Sweden in, inside uh, NATO, if Sweden would be attacked currently, they would be treated as if they would be inside NATO. So I, I see them as a de facto NATO um, uh, member. And as I said, uh, nothing speaks against uh, uh, delivering the uh, Gripen. Uh, currently, uh, we Germans, what we could do is to make the next um, order for the next uh, Eurofighter uh, tranche uh, number five. 
because industry is talking with us. The manufacturing of the Eurofighter will end in 28 or 29, and they are already now thinking about how to fill their, their order books um, to continue the production. And that is something that we could uh, contribu- contribute. Right, and exactly. It's about sending that market signal, as you mentioned before, which is in the gift of democratic governments to do. Even if they, they live in short-term administrations, they can actually make an order. And at the moment, we've seen this big pressure coming from BAE Systems and others, the manufacturer of the Eurofighter Typhoon, to replace the orders that have been blocked by Germany from going to Saudi Arabia, quite rightly on the point of view of democratic governance, democratic politics. But someone could step up and buy those, fill the order book, and actually then cover for Sweden, cover for others. Uh, you know, there's, There seem to be some easy wins there to be had if people have the political will, and as you said, Mick, before the intellectual work, to actually connect some of these dots. So we need to see a bit more political entrepreneurship there, perhaps. Alexander and Christian, we've heard from both of you about uh, sort of the German public's role in this. Uh, Alexander, you told us that there is a third of uh, the German public that is advocating for or negotiations with the Russians. And uh, Christian, you've also brought up the point of propaganda. But I would like to point out here that that does still mean uh, that two-thirds, at least, of the German public is actually still uh, on uh, quite firmly on the side of Ukraine. And we certainly see that a lot of polls uh, bear this out. So let's point, that, uh, point to that quickly before we come to uh, the role of parliament here, because uh, we have, you've just talked just now about what parliament can or can't do. So I'd actually like to ask uh, both you, Christian um, and Alexander, about what parliament uh, is able to do or should be doing. Uh, we have heard through our conversations here at Action Group Site and Venda that there is a most likely a parliamentary majority for things like delivering Taurus. Uh, that certainly is probably the most immediate need, but that there is a majority for other things regarding uh, defense procurement. Am I hearing that the problem is leadership, specifically the chancellery? What can parliament do here to drive this all forward? I believe that, yeah, also the parties that back the government, being the Social Democratic, Liberal and Green Party, they could be a bit more independent in their mindset, I believe. And this has happened in, in the Ukraine discussion. This has happened on several occasions, like when the chancellery was a bit reluctant. So that was when the parliamentary, like the parliamentary groups of, um, for well, well, some parliamentarians from the parliamentary group from the SPD and also the parliament groups of green and liberals who are a bit who are some more outspoken on that so they took responsibility and they became a bit more independent um, from the chancellery and I believe that was the right thing to do at that point because yeah the German constitution says very clearly that the chancellor is deciding in the end in which direction the policy politics is going and also um, the chancellor of course especially in the beginning when it was quite unclear where this would go the chancellor had one major goal like that mean being keeping Germany keeping NATO out of this war in the sense of not becoming a war party to avoid a major escalation of the conflict. I believe, especially in the first weeks, he had a good point at that point. But I think now it's it's been very, very clear that um, a, a Russian attack on NATO uh, the, will not take place, even if we decide to deliver a new system to Ukraine, because like a, a Russian attack on NATO, that would lead to a counteraction of NATO and the Russians know it, so it's not going to happen. I would say this very clearly, it's because I believe we should do more. We should step up to, to a certain point. Well, having said that, I believe there have been occasions that the parliamentarians, they have been more independent. And I believe this is something within limits that we should continue to do so. 
NATO is uh, strong. We have a, a discussion in Germany uh, how um, able, um, how the ability of our Bundeswehr uh, is in, in German media. Um, the talks are quite um, uh, bad, but the, the Bundeswehr is better than, uh, than, than it is called. So we are able to defend ourselves, especially if you name Russia as a potential aggressor. Russia has other things to do currently. Um, they do not have the capabilities currently, uh, Russians, to attack any NATO uh, uh, country. But um, uh, to answer your, your question and to, to um, add on uh, Christian, the, the German constitution indeed gives the chancellor the decisive role in delivering uh, weaponry. And you can see it really good uh, on the tank debate on the last year. In summer, we had something in the, in the Bundestag uh, where we all decided the democratic parties, that means conservatives, social democrats, uh, greens and liberals, uh, who voted for um, giving tanks to Ukraine. That was formally voted in, in summer of 22. And it took until January, until uh, Chancellor Scholz and the government gave tanks really free. So we can decide in, in Parliament whatever we want, but a decision for delivering weapons is always uh, something on a gremium called Bundessicherheitsrat, something like a Federal Security Council. And there the Chancellor is playing the, the most important role and in the end he decides. So our role now, uh, discussing Taurus that we had uh, uh, 10 days ago in, in our parliament, the Taurus debate, we're debating this in parliament, but even if we vote for a decision for this, uh, it is in the end the Chancellor uh, who will uh, give them away or give them not away. So our role is to lay the ground uh, in, in the political discussion, to, to make pressure uh, um, to the uh, government uh, to give away those weapons that are urgently needed by Ukraine. Right, exactly. And to remove the excuse that public opinion is there, to remove the excuse that expert opinion is there backing. We've seen this work actually time and again. It's taking longer now with tourists, but as you said, it took a long time with the Leopards as well. Um, and it's it, removing the excuse that the Chancellor often uses, which is that of hiding behind public opinion. As Aaron said, public opinion has been consistently on the side of doing more for Ukraine, even if there is a substantial minority who buy into Russian propaganda. But Mick, let me, let me come to you on this, because something Christian Klink mentioned I think is really important in this debate here in Germany, is the fear of escalation, which we often bat back by saying, no, there is no risk of escalation because NATO is so strong. Um, is that right, Mick? I mean, there's always a chance of escalation. It's, it's all about probabilities. Um, before I answer, I just want to get to what makes NATO strong and what can be improved. I think what makes NATO strong is, firstly, it's got a you know 70-year history of process and doctrine that uh, provides a common approach for both military and political elements and the interaction of the pole mill uh, system uh, within a large-scale uh, alliance. But most importantly, I think NATO's greatest strength now is reinvigorated purpose. I think three or four years ago, NATO was kind of wandering around looking at what it was there for these days, and I think Russia very stupidly has given purpose to the strongest and the richest alliance that's ever existed in the history of humankind. Uh, so I think that's its great strength. Its weakness is it just needs more will and the ability to act at speed. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it's got huge latent potential. It just needs to realise that. Uh, on escalation, I mean, I think both, both NATO and Russia have deterred each other 
You know, I think nuclear deterrence has worked in this war. Uh, it's deterred NATO from having boots on the ground or having no-fly zones. But it's also deterred Russia from doing other things in the Baltics or in other countries that are supporting Ukraine. So I think deterrence has worked uh, in this war. Uh, I think what's worked too well is self-deterrence. I think we've deterred ourselves, we've convinced ourselves of what Putin's red lines are without really knowing what they are. I think we've deterred ourselves conventionally more than Putin has primarily because I still don't think we deeply understand Putin and his motives and how he interacts with his people, even though there's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge and we've watched him very closely over many years. Right, yeah, a lot of Russia experts have painted Russia as being 10 feet tall and have painted Putin as being more powerful and the, you know, the legendary master strategist, ha-ha, um, that he's been seen to be. I mean, this is not to say they're stupid, it's not to say the Russians are incapable, but at the same time we have to have a realistic ex uh, assessment of that. And I think one thing He's to really... He's an opportunist, not a strategist. Right, there we go. And that's even something that some of the better experts have said for quite a long time. But Mick, I think something you said I'd really like to draw out for our listeners is sometimes we don't realise how strong we are. And so therefore that contributes to our self-deterrence as well. We know we have gaps to fill. We know we have work to do to make sure that we have the necessary forces that we've let go over the years. But ultimately, we are still so strong. And actually taking possession of that strength, realizing a strength is a virtue and that hope can come from that strength is something we need to do much, much more, I think. I'd like to come back quickly to the whole process of, of weapons and weapon deliveries and everything. I mean, it took us uh, months to make a decision on sending uh, leopard tanks to Ukraine. Uh, and there was a lot that went into that. It took uh, intra-coalition discontent. It took intra-government discontent. It took debates on talk shows. It took public opinion polls uh, showing that the German public actually supported arming Ukraine, also with heavy weapons. Uh, it took, as you uh, referenced, Alexander and Christian, uh, parliamentary pressure uh, as well. That also clearly played a role. Um, and while Seitenwende is supposed to also signify a change uh, in mindset... Uh, around foreign policy leadership and decisive foreign policy leadership, we seem to still be learning this lesson again around Taurus. Do we really need to do this every single time with every single new weapon system? Is this a problem with process in Germany or is it a problem with leadership or both? And what is it going to take for us to actually move as fast as we need to uh, now and in the future? Yeah, because we'll, we'll be there as long as it takes to sort Germany out. Whatever it is. Christian, I believe that's a that's a that's a very good point. That's a very good question. And if I may start, like on on reflecting just a, just a second on the uh, escalation thing, just once more, because of course this is something where you you do not want to you do not want to find out. Oh, I have been wrong, and also you do not want to like play all your cards openly. It's an issue that needs to be that's need to be thought about. But um, I find it quite clear that um, it's it's uh, the opponent is very very unlikely to escalate. If, for instance, you would delay deliver like a, a higher quantity of the systems you already have delivered. So I believe that makes it very, very unlikely for the opponent to escalate. So what I would, the, the, beside the Taurus debate, which I hope that will conclude in, in shortly, because you mentioned we're like, basically we are having like, it's kind of a deja vu, like we are having the same impression like again and again and again. But in addition to the Taurus debate, so what my favorite solution would be that, for instance, Germany would declare that it will deliver like not 
18 armored vehicles once, but maybe 18 armored vehicles, like from a certain point on, 18 armored vehicles every three months or something like that, like in a long-term plan with the industry. And maybe you could say, okay, oh, and from 2025, we'll do 36 vehicles every three months. And from 2026, we'll do 48 and so on, because this makes it very unlikely for the opponent to escalate. But it might be like, it might shift like the rational of the opponent to be saying, okay, there are a lot of, there is a lot of help coming. It will increase during that time. So we better negotiate. So having said that, what would you need um, in addition to continued support from the people? What would you need to make such a program? First of all, you would have to design a program. I believe the defense politicians of the three parties, they would have like a program ready. Probably like we have it, we have it somewhere in our drawer. That would be possible. So we need um, we need a political decision like by the chancellor, by the chancellor. I believe that can be reached. The increase of the help to 8 billion, I believe, is a good signal. And the last thing is that we need a financial instrument. And I believe this is something that we will work on, that we will work on very intensely. Alexander Müller has mentioned it. So if we put all those three things together, so I believe we can step up our help and at the same time avoid the repeated discussions that we have. Yes, I, um, I agree with all uh, that uh, Christian said. It is hard uh, to find out what is the reason why uh, the Chancellor is reluctant. Um, I don't think the escalation argument is uh, valid anymore. I think it was valid uh, during the debate if we de deliver tanks. Um, but with Taurus, I don't think the escalation uh, scenario is, is an argument. I think it is um, a fear uh, for, for the public opinion and for um, voters. That would be my guess. Because uh, Germans, especially voters uh, of social democrats, are quite peaceful-minded and um, generally think uh, weapon export is not a good thing. I talk against this with, with the example what uh, Ukraine um, uh, achieved already, the, the west of the Black Sea is uh, free now from uh, Russian warships uh, because of um, uh, missiles, because of precision missiles. Um, Ukraine successfully attacked uh, the ships, the, the warships from the Russians, the, the headquarter from the Russians, and they uh, redraw. Uh, to the Caucasian uh, uh, coast, and uh, now the the grain from Ukraine can go to Africa again. So uh, weapon export does not mean all, always um, death and uh, destruction, but it, it can help um, uh, the, the poor and to um, relieve poverty in, in the world, because now there's free uh, um, shipping in, in the west of, of the uh, Black Sea. So that's what, what I, I uh, 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 speak to um, uh, my voters and, and uh, uh, try to lead the public opinion uh, a little bit. And that's a long way uh, that we have to go to to distract those arguments um, against uh, uh, delivery of those weapons. And with the rest, uh, like Christian said, we have to improve, we have to uh, find budget, we have to find industrial capacity, and that will be the, the way uh, to go in the next months. And if I can just very shortly agree on this, because this is something that the Chancellor said very, very often. It's like his main concern is that the public support for the delivery due is, is still forthcoming. So that is a very important issue for the Chancellor as well. It's an important point to emphasize, because it's not only hope that comes through strength, peace comes through strength. Sometimes you need to fight the war, you need to deliver the weapons to actually deliver peace and de defeat dictators. I mean, that's a lesson that should be obvious to more Germans, I think, and one that needs to be made more clearly from linking individual deliveries to the overall outcome. I mean, surely that's a question of objective strategy and tactics, isn't it? Make no, nothing uh, strange to military folk there. No, there's, there's only two ways to achieve peace. One is to sit around a fire singing songs and hope it eventuates. 
The other way is to equip um, uh, yourself physically, intellectually and morally to ensure you can achieve a just and enduring peace yourself. As we've got the benefit of your expertise for our listeners here, if there was a message you could deliver to Berlin and to the decision makers in Berlin about military matters relating to Ukraine and to Germany's own army, what would it be? Only two things. Firstly, commit to Ukraine winning, not just uh, treading water. Secondly, stay the course. We're only in mile six of a 26.2 marathon. It's too soon to get tired and it's too soon to quit. So um, commit to winning and stay the course. And that would be the message for politicians in every Western and other capital when it comes to this war. Thank you all very much indeed for your time this morning. That's been a fascinating discussion and really rich. Got to the heart of a lot of the issues that we're covering here in, in Berlin. As I say, we're going to be talking also to Roderick Kiesewetter and Zara Nani about these issues coming forward and releasing this as a package together with Olya Stefanishina's uh, interventions here at DGAP this morning. Thank you to all our guests for joining us today for such an in-depth discussion of the political stakes and what we need to do to win the conflict in Ukraine. How do we overcome some of the obstacles in Germany's domestic political setup uh, to make sure that the country can actually support what is truly in its interest as well as in accordance with its values? That remains a task for any of us ahead committed, be they politicians, think tankers, journalists, or members of the public, to make sure that we have the intellectual arguments in line with our political opportunities. We're going to be continuing the conversation with Roderick Kiesewetter of the CDU and Zara Nani of the Greens next week. But I think there's some key takeaways from what uh, the Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister, Olga Stefanishina, and our guests have said today. One of them is that we have to be firmly in mind of the opportunities that Ukraine's victory would bring. For NATO, it would strengthen NATO. It would also strengthen European security. For the European Union, this is the geopolitical opportunity of a generation. For Germany, this is a chance to rediscover its strength and how to put it to positive purpose. And it's in fact that message of hope through strength that I think I would like our listeners to most uh, reflect on today and which is a message that I hope will resonate within the halls of power here in Berlin. Absolutely. And I would also like our listeners to reflect on the fact that in Germany, it seems that we might be uh, slow to change or slow to make take certain decisions. There is, of course, uh, a majority both in Parliament and among a public for further changes and further support to Ukraine. That's something that we really should be, I think, reminding uh, everybody uh, in Berlin about, including our listeners in the Chancellery uh, as well, uh, when it comes to giving those kinds of signals, those political signals of our increasing support, uh, which are also important in addition to all of the material contributions that we make, which are indeed significant, right? That's it. And getting the military, political and societal ducks in line is going to be a crucial challenge in, in the days and weeks going forward, as well as in the months that follow. A particular challenge comes for European leaders on uh, the 15th of December in Brussels at the European Council right. meeting that will um, make the decision on whether to formally open accession negotiations with Ukraine. We know that Hungary is currently blocking on that. And it was mentioned today in the speech by uh, Deputy Prime Minister Stefanishina. We were asked very clearly, do we want to stand with those who seek to veto Europe's future, whether they are in Budapest or in Moscow? The choice is ours. And that's another great opportunity for Olaf Scholz to rediscover the strength that he has 
and put that to the purpose of our better future. And when we talk about that better future, let's remember the opportunities that we've been talking about. Uh, Ukraine and NATO would be one of the most experienced uh, military forces anywhere. And uh, the Deputy Prime Minister was also talking about the, um, the sheer size of the Ukrainian market. So those are opportunities that we also have to keep in mind. This is not just an opportunity for Ukraine. It is an opportunity as well for us uh, in the rest of it Europe. is, and that's something that German business is very keen to seize. And the message we're getting from our business contacts here is uh, very much that they want to invest in Ukraine, not only because it's the right thing to do and not because they're being told to do so by politicians, but because they want to make money. And it's a real investment opportunity if Ukraine is secure. And a secure Ukraine... And has the guarantee. And has the security guarantee. And that will mean getting Ukraine into NATO. There is no alternative for that uh, in any serious way. But getting Ukraine into NATO also means a secure Europe. This is a win waiting to be seized. It's time to be bold. It's time to be strong. Indeed. And thank you so much to our guests this week for joining us. In particular, Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, Olha Stefanishna. Be sure to check our show notes for how you find our guests as well as any recent readings that they have done on this particular subject. For now, until next time from Berlin, Danke, Auf Wiedersehen and Slava Ukraini. Heroyam Slava, Dababacheni.